Our God and Father, Lord, we honor you today and we praise you and we glorify your holy name. We have gathered in this place to worship you, to exalt you, to lift up your name and to sing the high praises of your wonder and your glory. We rejoice at the very thought, God, that you are in heaven on your throne, that nothing that happens on earth escapes your attention, but indeed you hold all these things in your hands, that, Lord, you have created the world for your own purpose, and everything in it has its purpose, which you have assigned to it. We thank you that you sovereignly rule by your providence throughout history, bringing your world and your creation to an expected end. Father, we are grateful that through the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ that we can stand before you blameless, without fault, and with great joy. We thank you for the great things that you have accomplished for us in him, for his precious blood, and God, for his great conquering of death, evidenced by his resurrection. We are grateful for all of the promises and the blessings that you have given to us in Christ. May we realize them more fully today, and Lord, may we glorify you for them. We thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit who now lives in us, that we might even be the very temple of the living God, that, Lord, your dwelling is now with men. You have come to live in our hearts, in our souls, by your Spirit. And, God, we ask that you would continue to sanctify us and make us holy as we eagerly await the great day of your return. Lord, may we be encouraged by the thought that you have conquered death and that you have nothing but good designs for those who love you, who are the called according to your purpose. God, help us to realize that you are even now working your good purpose in our lives. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so in our study, First Thessalonians, we had arrived at uh, the passage in uh, chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, and we're there discussing the last several weeks um, the hope that we have of the resurrection from the dead. And last week specifically, we looked at verse 16, where we saw that there is a resurrection of the dead that takes place at the second coming of Christ. And so, uh, last week made the point that from the text of this scripture in 1 Thessalonians, that there is in fact a resurrection of the dead. The scripture plainly says, the dead in Christ shall rise. And so, if you will, in the context of this passage, when Paul finally gives some vivid uh, explanation of the parousia, of the coming of Christ, 
that he had been speaking about in the letter of 1 Thessalonians in every chapter, all the way up until chapter 4, here he's going to kind of give us a vivid description of it. And of course, two weeks ago, we went over verse 15, where it says that the Lord, according to the Lord's own word, right? According to the Lord's, I'm sorry, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so, if you will, we talk about the fact that there's a very clear parallel between these verses in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the Olivet Discourse where Jesus' words are recorded in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. Specifically, there's a direct parallel between the verses in Matthew 24, 29 through 31, Mark 13, verses 24 through 27, and the passage we're studying in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. There we see the coming of Christ in power and great glory with his mighty angels and with the trumpet of God. We see that very clearly in the Olivet Discourse. Here Paul is giving us a vivid description of this event. In verse 16 he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so if you will... At the second coming of Christ is a resurrection from the dead of those who are in Christ. And we explained that those who are in Christ here is speaking of the church from all ages, from the time of Adam until the time of the second coming of Christ. That all of the righteous dead will be raised at that point in history. And uh, went on to talk about the fact that This is not the only resurrection of the dead. As we looked at the idea or the concept of the resurrection from the dead on your handout in in, uh, uh, page uh, 50, we talked about the fact that this was an event that was clearly spoken of in the Old Testament, but that much more vividly and clearly explained by our Lord Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament. And then we went on to make the point that it's very clear in Scripture that there are two general resurrections that take place in the course of history as described in scripture although there are other resurrections that take place for example there were people that were raised from the dead by the prophets in the old testament there were people that were raised from the dead by uh, jesus himself and also by the apostles in the new testament but that those were specific events that took place um, uh, for various reasons at various times in history however There are two massive and general resurrections that take place in the course of history, which are clearly taught in the New Testament, and that those two resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked, or, if you will, the resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto condemnation or contempt, in the words of Daniel, those two resurrections are separated by a period of 1,000 years. Okay. Now this was made clear on page 51 of your handouts where <clears throat> the scripture in Revelation 20 makes it very clear that those two resurrections are separated by a period of 1,000 years. And uh, if you will, this is kind of where we ended last week. And I want you to notice the comments at the bottom of page 51, where 
if you will, there's a little chart showing the two resurrections, and there's a, an abundance of scripture references given for the two uh, resurrections. And if you will, I want you to, to notice this last point before we move on. In these two passages, the contrast behind the statements in 20 verse 5 about the first resurrection, over whom the second death has no power, verse 6, and the second death of verse 2014. 2014 says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name, verse 15, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so I'm wanting you to understand the contrast between those who are raised from the dead in the first resurrection and those who are subject to the second death, which happens after the judgment of the wicked at the second resurrection at the end of the millennium. Okay? So, the contrast is this, that those who are raised in the first resurrection shall become immortal and never again be subject to death. They will live forever from that point forward. Okay? And this is what the text of Scripture says. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, look with me there. I'm sorry. At, at the end of verse 4, it's talking about those in verse 4 who have uh, been beheaded because of their testimony of Christ and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And it says there that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay? So here you have this company of people in this verse specifically who have been persecuted during the time of the Great Tribulation. And here the scripture says that they were uh, 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 came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now last week I made the point that this is, in fact, the same event that's taking place in 1 Thessalonians 4:15 through 17 when the dead in Christ are raised from the dead. All of these events culminate at the second coming of Christ. What's being described in Revelation chapter 20, the entire chapter, is what happens at the second coming of Christ, which is pictured in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. So track with me here for a minute. Revelation is going through a certain chronology of events. It's not absolutely linear. There's a whole lot of literary interludes that are in, in the book. Okay, However, it's linear, generally speaking, as it goes through its course of events. When you get <coughs> down toward the very end of the book, okay, chapter 16, the bulls of God's wrath, chapter 17, the harlot that rides the beast, and she's drunk with the wine of the saint, the blood of the saints, and and chapter 18, the fall of Babylon, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, the great commerce of all the nations. It's all fallen, the religious system of all the nations, all the false worship, all the false gods, all the idolatry finally comes crashing down around them as Christ returns in chapter 19 of Revelation. And there in verses 11 and following, he's presented as the rider on the white horse who's, on whose thigh is written the name faithful and true, right? And uh, he comes forth with a sword out of his mouth, a double-edged sword, and, and there he smites the kings of the earth, right? And he does what? Takes the beast who is the Antichrist and the false prophet there at the very end of chapter 19, throws him in the lake of fire, okay? Immediately after that, 
He binds Satan with a great chain in the abyss. There the scripture says he'll be bound for a thousand years. And then at that point, he um, uh, begins to establish his millennial kingdom and establish his millennial throne. The, the context of Revelation 20 explains, if you will, the course of that thousand-year period. However, what happens at the first part of that is this idea that these who were suffering during the Great Tribulation are actually raised from the dead and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Well, this is the same kind of terminology that's used about the church throughout the New Testament. Okay? The, the church is looking forward to that day when the dead in Christ shall rise and we who are alive will be caught up to, to meet the Lord in the air, right? And we will be what? Kings and priests to our God, right? Doing what? Ruling and reigning with Christ, right? So if you will, this thing that's taking this general resurrection if you will that takes place at the second coming of Christ which is the uh, resurrection that we have spoken of the first resurrection I'm saying it is the same event that takes place in the first part of Revelation chapter 20 because if you will uh, I made the point last week that the, the, the immensity of people that will be raised from the dead at this first resurrection is massive. If you just counted only the church, the saints who lived in the church age from the time of Christ until the time of the second coming, that would be an innumerable throng, if you will. Right? If you talk about the righteous dead of all of the ages, okay, it's obviously an even bigger number. Right. Of course, it's, it's numberable. It is numbered. As a matter of fact, God has chosen everyone by name. But the fact of the matter is, is that that could not be a separate event from the event that's mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5, because an event of that magnitude, a resurrection of that magnitude, would not be overlooked by John and not referred to as the first resurrection. Are you with me? You understand my point? Is that confusing at all? Okay. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, by inference, you cannot do this explicitly because the text does not explicitly say in Revelation 20, verse 4 and 5, this is the event that happened back in First Thessalonians, right? <laughs> so what I'm saying is, as you begin to incorporate these verses together, you, you, you uh, obviously must make the implication that these events are the same thing, okay? And unfortunately, when we, when we study Bible prophecy, we're getting, a, we're getting events from the context of different writers in different places, in different eras, in different times, and, and yet, at times, speaking of the same events. And so this is how we get all of the details of prophecy, is by going to all of those passages and looking at them in their context and understanding their intended meaning to the original recipients of the writing and putting all of that together to try to understand what the whole picture of end time events looks like. Okay? So, nevertheless, I made that point to say this. That those who partake in the first resurrection at the second coming of Christ will never die. As Paul says, that... The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and what? 
so shall we be with the Lord forever. Okay, and when Paul teaches about that event in 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> he says very clearly there, middle of page 50, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable will put on the imperishable, I'm sorry, this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So the idea is that at the resurrection, we are made to be immortal from that point forward. Okay? This is why in Revelation chapter 20, it says this. There at the end of verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now listen, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Okay? This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy, verse 6, is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Okay? I'm wanting you to understand this contrast between the second death and the first resurrection. Okay? The second death is dying eternally in hell, being separated from God. That is what death is. Death is separation from God. Okay? In its, in its earthly, physical type, Death is the cessation of the physical body, right? In its greater and ultimately much more important reality, death is being separated from God forever, okay? Which is what is described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, when Paul is talking about uh, what happens to people who are judged by God at the second coming. Right? It says there, they will be shut out from his presence with eternal destruction. Okay, And so the idea then is that those who take part in the first resurrection, listen, they become immortal and the second death has no power over them. They will live forever, imperishable and immortal with Christ forever and ever, world without end. In contrast... To those who get raised at the judgment of the wicked a thousand years later, right, where all of the dead are coming from the sea and from the land and from all these places to be raised up and judged according to their deeds before the great white throne. And there, the scripture says that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that is the second death. Verse 14 of Revelation 20 <clears throat> death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. By the way, this is where death is destroyed. Revelation 20, 14. And it says there that this is the second death. Okay? The same event, I'm sorry, the same thing, second death, is mentioned again in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, where it's making the contrast between those who are allowed to come into the city where God exists and those who are outside the city, the liars and the adulterers and the murderers, right? And uh, it says there that their place is in the lake of fire, which is the second death, okay? So if you will, the contrast between the first resurrection and the second death, 
the idea is Christians should be greatly encouraged that through hope in Christ, we are eagerly awaiting the Savior's coming. When he comes, we are going to be changed. Whether you have died or whether you are alive, at that point in history, you shall become immortal and you shall never die. Okay? That is the great hope that we have. And that is, that is actually Paul's main point in, in this text. And this is why he says in verse 18, Therefore encourage one another with these words. Could, could there be more encouraging words than Christ has conquered death once and for all, right? And it's going to be once and for all applied to us at his coming. Okay? And that's what we're so eagerly awaiting, are we not? Are we not eagerly awaiting the escape of these mortal bodies? Do we not groan? <laughs> right? Because in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, we're unclothed, we're groaning, right? Waiting for that day when we shall be clothed, right? With the eternal dwelling not made with hands, right? You with me? That's what we're looking forward to. Right now, there's an awful lot of groaning going on. Would you agree? Amen. And so this is our great hope. Christ is going to come, and he's going to fix the problem once and for all, okay? However... He's going to fix it for us at the first resurrection. And then he's going to spend a thousand years putting the rest of his enemies under his feet. Okay, so that the display of his glory will last for a thousand years on the face of the earth, physically before all mankind and all the angels in heaven to see, at which time at the end of that, sin and Satan and death will be destroyed forever. And the scripture goes on to say from there, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Right? For the former heavens and the former earth passed away. Right? So, <clears throat> it's an interesting chronology of events God has designed. Would you agree? <clears throat> As I was studying this morning, I, just, I was looking at scriptures in the Old Testament prophets that were just blowing my mind. I was just... Stuff I'm reading in there that is just jumping out to me that is just absolutely amazing. And how God conceals these little statements and these writings of the prophets that speak about glories that are yet to come that are just unbelievably amazing. Um, <clears throat> okay, so that brings us to the top of page 52. And uh, when considering the resurrection mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, it is important to realize that this resurrection must, of course, be the resurrection of the righteous unto life, as these are God's people, the church, who have been promised eternal life, and in fact, those who do not have to grieve like the rest who have no hope, because the Christian hope is that we will be raised again to eternal life and forever be with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the point is just that this resurrection that happens when Christ comes again is the resurrection unto life that Jesus spoke of. It's the resurrection unto life that Daniel spoke of. Okay? It's the first resurrection. Uh, because who is it that's raised up there? Christians. Right. How do we know that? Because the text says in verse 16, the dead in Christ shall rise. Okay? This is what Christ does with the great trumpet of God. What does he do? He gathers together his people. 
That's what the trumpet was for, right? And who is it that does the gathering? The angels. Are you with me? The second coming of Christ is accompanied with what? Trumpets and angels, right? The trumpet signals the, the, uh, the gathering. The loud command of Christ is for the angels to gather, okay? And you, you look at that gathering at various places in the scripture, and you'll find out exactly what's happening there. Uh, there is an ingathering, if you will, of the fruit of the earth, which is the church, the people of God. Okay? And then there is what's left, which gets thrown into the great wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. <clears throat> Even Jesus speaks of this. When he's speaking about the true vine, he says what? He says uh, there that, uh, I hope you're bearing much fruit, because if you're not, guess what happens? He gets snipped off the vine, and what happens? Gathered up and sticks are gathered up and burned in the fire. John the Baptist told us that would happen in the ministry of Jesus, right? He said the the chaff would be burned up with unquenchable fire and the wheat would be what? Gathered into the storehouse. Yeah? Okay, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. Here we have pictured the rapture, okay? And we've talked about this extensively. Um, This event that we call the rapture is the first resurrection. It happens at the second coming of Christ. And it will be at this time that there will be a powerful transformation of the bodies of living saints from mortal to immortal and never again to be subject to death. And just something to pay attention to. In verse 16, it says the Lord will descend from heaven, the loud trumpet call, with the shout, the loud trumpet call, the voice of the archangel, and what? The dead in Christ will rise first. Okay? Verse 16, resurrection of the dead. Verse 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Okay? Now, the other place in Scripture where this is vividly described is 1 Corinthians 15. We just read that passage. But you need to see that event as an event that takes place in the course of history. And that's why we, this is such a popular thing, the rapture. Why? Because it's an amazing thing that happens. That, that living people will be translated up off of the earth to be caught up with those who have been raised from the dead and meet Christ in the air. I mean, that is an amazing thing that's going to happen in the course of history. Nothing has happened like that in the the course of history as far as man has been on the earth. Are you with me? It's a very profound event that takes place. And this is why it's such a popular idea or concept. This is the place in Scripture where that is explained to us. That we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Along with the dead in Christ. Okay? So... I would like for you to think about, when you think about the rapture, don't necessarily think about all the baggage that comes along with the thought or the idea of the rapture or what some men might mean by the rapture. But think about in your mind what the Bible says about the rapture, okay? Which is what I've been describing to you for the last two weeks in vivid detail with many passages of Scripture, okay? The rapture is an event that happens at the second coming of Christ, at the parousia, And when it happens, 
The dead in Christ are going to be raised first, and then we who are alive and remain are going to be what? Rapio, right, in the Latin. Harpazo in the Greek, right? <coughs> or if you will, in the English, raptured or caught up, okay? This is an event that is coming. Now, in the New Testament, there are other places that speak about this event by way of reference. So they'll be going along and be talking about a certain idea or whatever, and they'll make a reference to this event. Not in the context of describing all of these events, but in the context of simply talking about what will happen when our bodies are transformed and changed. Okay, So, for example, 1 John 3. John writes, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, what? We shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Now, how? what is he like? Somebody tell me, what is he like? He's glorious, okay. But, but what, do you, what do we mean by that? Okay. Let's go back. Jesus was alive, he was killed, he was buried, and he was what? Resurrected from the day. And when he was resurrected, he appeared. And when he appeared, what was he like? He was in a glorified body, right? And he had, um, he had powers that were unlike his, his other uh, unglorified body before his death and resurrection, right? He could, he could uh, uh, appear and disappear. He could walk through walls. He could do amazing things, right, in this glorified body. Right? And yet, nevertheless, he was in a body. Right? He had flesh. He had bones. He was in a body. He was sitting down eating dinner with his disciples. Right? And then, uh, of course, you understand at the ascension, his last appearance to his disciples there. He is there with them, and then he does what? He ascends into the heavens, and the angel says what? Just like the Lord left, he's going to come in like manner. Right? He ascended up in the clouds, right, in this glorified body. And just like that, he's going to what? Come back in the clouds of the air with power and with great glory, right? Well, John says that when he what? Appears. Remember how I told you that this event, the second coming of Christ, is often referred to in the New Testament as him appearing, right? But when he appears, what shall happen? We shall be like him. Understand? We're going to be changed. We're going to, be, we're going to become like Christ in his glorified, immortal, imperishable state. Okay? Or Paul writes of this in Philippians in chapter 3, verses 20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Okay? Here's what Paul's saying. He's going to change what he calls uh, the body of our humble state, which is this what? This groaning mortal body. Right? And he's going to change it into what? into conformity with the body of his glory. What's that mean? We're going to be like Jesus. Okay, that's why we call that doctrine the doctrine of glorification, right? We got the doctrine of salvation, right? We got saved. We are being saved. That's the doctrine of what? Sanctification. And we will be saved. That's the doctrine of what? Glorification. 
There's coming a future point in history when our salvation is going to reach its consummation. And it's going to culminate in our physical body being made immortal, even as our soul has already been made immortal. Amen? Okay. All right. So then. Um, and then, of course, we read the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul explains very clearly that um, we shall be changed. We shall not all sleep, which is a reference to what? physical death we shall not all what die right but we shall all be changed so he's saying there's going to come a, uh, this this thing he calls a mystery right at a certain point in history right when is that certain point he says at the last trumpet right for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed okay and there he says, we're going to put on immortality. We are going to become imperishable. Okay? Now, you see how these, this event is mentioned by reference in certain other places in Scripture. And so what I'm encouraging you to think about, when you think about the rapture, think about the way the Bible describes it. That may mean a lot to you. It may, it may be some, somewhat vague what I'm trying to get across to you. I'm trying to get you to think with Scripture in your mind. And, and not what the latest novel says about what's going on. Are you with me? Amen. <clears throat> Notice also that the translation of the living saints united to them, united them to both the dead in Christ who were just raised and the Lord himself. This is significant. It says that we uh, will be together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The Bible is giving a very vivid and specific description of this rapture. And it's saying that when it happens, we are going to be caught up to meet the dead in Christ who have been raised first and the Lord. Okay? It's a very significant thing that this text says. Look what it says. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay? So that the translated saints are united with the dead in Christ who were raised, and they are united with the Lord himself, right? So shall we ever, we, the dead in Christ and the translated saints, be with the Lord forever. Are you with me? Okay. <clears throat> Notice that the common picture of the second coming of Christ is in the clouds. And this is where the raptured saints meet the resurrected saints in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. This is a key indicator that these events, the rapture and the second coming, happen at the same time, post-tribulationism, and are not separated by a period of seven years, pre-tribulationism. Okay? Here's what I'm saying. The text that we're studying, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, is the greatest evidence that the rapture and the second coming happen at the same time. How come? Because when you read the text, what happens? The rapture and the second coming happen at the same time. Okay? It couldn't be any more clear than it is right here in this text. Not to mention then, with that knowledge, if you go and start looking at the other texts where the second coming, right, is brought up, you will see in those texts, that there is a rapture, there is a resurrection that takes place at that time. And there isn't any scripture that speaks about a pre-tribulation rapture. It doesn't exist 
in Scripture. There's no, there's no text of Scripture that describes that period being separated by seven years. Okay? So, I, a little while earlier, I said, well, you know, we have to take various passages of Scripture and we get all the little gleanings from all the different passages and we put them all together and we come up with an understanding of a specific doctrinal issue, which is what happens with those who, t- who interpret the scripture as a pre-tribulation rapture, okay? I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. What I am saying is there's no explicit scripture, okay, that tells us that those two events are separated by a period of seven years. In fact, what I am arguing is what we see clearly in the text of scripture is that those two events, the rapture and the second coming, happen at the same time, okay? So that's my argument. Um, However... I wanted to point out that this idea about uh, being in the clouds is not insignificant, okay? Because Paul says in the text, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, okay? Well, that's significant. Why? Well, it's significant because of this whole concept of... um, the comparison between what's going on in this scripture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, and the passages that Jesus speaks about his second coming. Because there's trumpets, there's angels, there's clouds, there's glory, (laughs) okay? There's a gathering of his elect people, okay? All of those things are happening in both of these passages very clearly, okay? It's not insignificant that this is said to happen in the clouds, Okay, the in the clouds idea is the idea that tells us that this is when Christ is returning. Why? Because from Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, the great messianic prophecy of the Son of Man, he's coming in the clouds. And it was given to him power and authority and a kingdom and a throne. Okay, it's the whole picture of Daniel chapter 7. The Messiah comes, destroys the Antichrist, and hands over the sovereignty of the kingdom to the saints. That's Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7. Daniel 7, verse 14. And the reference to the kingdom being handed over to the saints is verse 27 of the same chapter. But the point is, is that this is what the angel said when Jesus was leaving. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and following. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come just in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So what's the idea? He's coming in the clouds with glory, just like he left in the clouds with glory. The angels are making a point. He's going to come back just like you saw him leave. Okay? What I'm saying is when Jesus comes in the clouds, that's the second coming. That's what Matthew says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shine, the stars will not give their light, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. At that time, a sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they... And he will uh, send forth uh, his angels with a loud trumpet call. I'm sorry. It says there. They will see the Son of Man coming 
on the clouds with power and with great glory and with a great trumpet call. Right? And the idea is when Christ returns again, he's always coming with angels, with trumpets, and in the clouds, and with great glory. Okay? And he will, verse 31, send forth his angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. Or in Mark, right? From one end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Right? Sean? Yes. While you're in Matthew, mm-hmm. Matthew 25, 31, it looks like there is a judgment of the living when he comes. Isn't that the sheep and the goats? Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's the sheep I've and the goats. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so they're so those who are alive on the earth are the sheep. Because he's separating the sheep well, their sheep and goats. Uh-huh. So there is a judgment between the alive going to the clouds. Uh-huh. Before they go in the clouds? Am I messed up with that? Well, okay, just the passage in Matthew 25, where Jesus, it says there in the verse you you brought up, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with his angels, Mm -hmm. he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. Mm -hmm. Okay? In my mind, this is a picture of Jesus sitting on the millennial throne, ruling over the nations. Okay. Okay, what will he do? Ultimately, he will judge them, every one of them. And they will be judged with a judgment with finality, right? And on the basis of the things they have done, they will either what? Enter into life or they will enter into what? In the context of those verses, eternal punishment, okay? So the question becomes, when does that happen? That's where all the controversy is, okay? Some say it's a judgment uh, that happens uh, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom and Christ is judging the nations, some say it is the same thing that's pictured at the great white throne judgment. I tend to lean that way. Because the nature of that judgment results in finality. Okay? This isn't just some, you know, well, you've been a good nation. Well, we'll, we'll uh, you know, we'll treat you right. You, you've been a bad nation. You know, uh, we're going to treat you badly. It's not like that. That judgment results in a final uh eternal punishment for those who have do not have his favor so we who have been glorified will be the sheep and separated at the great white throne uh we could be viewed in that in that sense yes absolutely nobody else is going to escape final judgment except those who are in christ Okay, I mean, think about what we're saying. If, if we were to, to try to take that passage and apply it another way, for example. Okay, the common interpretation is, this nation was good to the people of Israel. This is basically what gets said in dispensational premillennialism. Mm-hmm. The nations who were good to Israel during the church age and the time of the tribulation, those, are you enter into the millennial kingdom and we'll let you survive, Right? You other nations who were bad to the nation of Israel, guess what? You're going to hell right now. Okay? Um, So my point is, okay, so here's what we're saying is, is that there are some judgment of deeds or works, if you will, right? By the way, the righteous who who get judged in that passage, Mm -hmm. it says, enter into the eternal kingdom Mm -hmm. that has been prepared for you by our Father, something like this, Mm -hmm. has been prepared to you by our Father from before the world began. Now, does that sound like just some temporal nation that's just going to go live for a thousand years? 
Or does that sound like a promise that's made to somebody who has faith, who possesses eternal life? You understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that judgment sounds like something that happens uh, at the great white throne judgment because of the finality of the pronouncement of the judgments. One, you go into eternal punishment. The other, you enter into the kingdom of our Father, which is an eternal kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. That's why I'm saying I don't think it's just some judgment of nations. Okay. I'm sorry, I am chasing this rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so anyway, there, there's a lot to that judgment. There's a lot of controversy about that. that the biggest controversy is when does that happen? Okay? I say, I say it happens at the end of the millennium. There are others who say it happens at the beginning of the millennium. And based on that, it's a different kind of a judgment. Okay? Um, but my point was, you wouldn't think that Christ would be judging anybody on their works in regard to their eternal destiny. You understand what I'm saying? Because that violates a very crystal clear picture of God's judgment in regard to our eternal destiny. Would you agree? That by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Right? How are we justified? By faith. Okay? And so, so if you will, I'll just bring this up and then I'm going to move on. I, I, I coined a new term. <laughs> it's this term. Conflation. <laughs> Actually, I didn't coin it. It's not me. It's not new with me. <laughs> I, I, I found it on a little page in the back of Grudem's Systematic Theology where he makes this little statement. He's going through all these magnanimous things. He makes this little tiny statement. Sometimes events are conflated in, <laughs> in, uh, in different passages of Scripture, right? Well, let me tell you, this idea of conflation is something I've tried to describe to you many times in the past where a verse of scripture will go through several verses of scripture and in that several verses of scripture there are events spoken of that are separated by thousands of years of time but it'll say like like for example we are all familiar with the prophecy of jesus birth in isaiah chapter 9 where it says uh <clears throat> behold i will give you a son right somebody quote this for me can anybody quote this for me and uh he he will be uh, everlasting father prince of peace Right, you with me? Right. The in, the government will be on his shoulders, and the increase of his government will never end. Right? It's going on, on, on. Okay. Well, here we start the thing. We're going to get a child. Right. <laughs> and by the way, this child, right, is God Himself in the flesh. Right. And by the way, the increase of his government will never end. Right. And it goes on, and it speaks. It, it speaks about the culmination of his righteous king. It even goes on. In further passages describing a wolf will lie down with a lamb and the, the you know, a child will play in the adder's nest and all these things. Okay, well, here you just have this one little verse of scripture that's making a few statements, but those things are separated by thousands of years of time. From the time that Christ was a child until the time that the wolf is lying down with the lamb. Are you with me? Or that the increase of his government has reached its maximum potential in the millennial kingdom. Those things are separated by at least, what, 2,000 years, if not more. You with me? That's conflation. <laughs> so what are we saying? It's like rivers coming together at a certain point. They, they call that the confluence of rivers. Okay, so you have these events in prophecy that are going to happen at some point in history, but they all 
find confluence in this one text of Scripture. Just like in Isaiah 65, where he says, Behold, I'll create a new heavens and a new earth, and the, 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 the old former things will not even come to mind, right? Okay, we're all thinking, great, new heavens and new earth. The next verse says, The one who dies at a hundred will be considered accursed. And so we scratch our head and we say, wait a minute. People don't die in the new heavens and the new earth. Are you with me? Why? Because events are conflated. Okay, these events are separated by long periods of time. But the prophet speaks about them as, look, these are things that's going to happen when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, he's going to do all these things, you know. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to destroy the wicked. Listen, when the Messiah comes, he's going to destroy the Antichrist. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to destroy Satan. But you know what? Those two things are separated by a thousand years. When he first comes, with the brightness of his coming, he kills the Antichrist. That's what 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 says. Okay? But the devil himself isn't killed until when? Until the end of the thousand years, when he's let loose and there's a final rebellion on the earth. And the scripture says at that time, then he destroys the devil. So when I say, well, when Jesus comes, he's going to kill the Antichrist and the devil. Am I right? Yes, I'm absolutely right. When Jesus comes, he's going to kill the Antichrist and the devil. But those two things are separated by a period of a thousand years. Are you with me? Now, that idea of conflation happens all through prophetic literature. Okay, And all the prophecy uh, writers are well aware of it. The problem happens when we don't see the confluence of events and we try to start jamming all those things into the same period of time. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm saying the controversy over that judgment Mm -hmm. in Matthew Mm -hmm. is about when that judgment takes place. Um, and, And based on when that judgment takes place, it has to do with, okay, who's being judged and how are they being judged and why are they being judged and what's the result of that judgment. Okay, and depending on if you take one view or the other, it changes the answer to all those questions pretty dramatically. Are you with me? Okay, sorry to chase that rabbit. But, but you see, that's, that's important stuff. So I want you to think about this conflation, okay? I'm going to teach you more about this. I'm going to show you 20 places in Scripture where this conflation happens. And, and then you're going to understand what, what I've been talking about when I... I used to say it was like a telescoping of events. You'd like be looking down a, a telescope at a text of Scripture, and you could see all these events that are named in the, in the Scripture, but they happen at, at times that, that are vastly different. Okay? All right. Sorry. I'm not sorry. I just, I just don't like to chase rabbits all the time. You know? But when you're studying prophecy, man, there's... There's more bunnies running around. Than <laughs> so it says in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him. Okay? That is exactly what Matthew 24 says. It says, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Okay? This is what First Thessalonians 4 says, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with a loud trumpet call, with the voice of the archangel, right? And, and with, with the uh, trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the airs. So shall we be with the Lord forever. <clears throat> okay. Nevertheless, Christ will be coming again in the clouds and will raise his people from the dead and gather them together with his living saints, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Don't miss this last phrase and very, and very important part of the text. When Jesus returns for his church and gathers us together, we shall never be separated from Christ again, but rather so we shall always be with the Lord. This is the primary reason why verse 13 explains that Christians do not grieve as those who have no hope and the main support of that statement. Okay? Don't divorce this little section of scripture from its context, its larger context. Paul is telling us why we don't grieve as those who don't have any hope in verse 13. Why? Because we know that we're going to be reunited with those loved ones of ours who die in Christ. Amen? Amen? So we don't grieve. We don't grieve like the heathen world grieves when, they're, when they have dead. Right? Why? Because our dead, listen, Christian dead, okay, rise again. And we're going to be what? United with them, with the Lord, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. This is our great hope and confidence that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, has conquered death. And all of those who enter into him have with him been set free from death. Are you with me? Now, that is a very encouraging thought. I challenge you. I was thinking about this this morning. I didn't have a lot of time to really consider it. But think about this. Could there be a more encouraging thing that could be spoken to a human being? That, that there is an escape from the greatest enemy we know, which is death. Okay? That there is an escape from death. Or if you will, those of us who know a little more, <laughs> there is an escape from the wrath of an angry God of which death is the consequence that he decreed for sin. Are you with me? Could there be a more encouraging word? That, that your soul can be eternally secure in the favor of God that he gives freely as a gift by his grace that you simply receive by faith in Christ. I say there's no more encouraging thing that could possibly be spoken to a human being. Uh, so, with that, Paul writes, therefore comfort one another with these words. Why? Because he just got done describing to us the greatest encouragement we could possibly hear. Think about this. When you're in a situation from which there is no escape, you, you were uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer. You, uh, you're getting older and you realize the day of your mortality is very near. 
right? Or you, you've lost a loved one that's very dear to you. I mean, I don't know what your situation might be, okay? But let me tell you, <laughs> that's not the final deal. Cancer isn't the final deal for Christians. It's just the pathway to glory. Amen. Are you with me? We need to think about it in those terms. The other thing we need to consider is the reality of these things. Amen. You know, we're going along through life and we die. And we're so shocked. We're so surprised. <laughs> are you with me? You know how we are. I mean, I'm the same way. I mean, if I lost somebody near or dear to me or tomorrow I went to the dock and he said, man, your time's up, right? Oh, I'd just be in, in shambles, wouldn't I? Well, it depends. It depends on, on, on how well I'm acquainted with the reality of life and how well acquainted I am that my life is nothing but a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow like that, man. Are you with me? That's the reality of life, family. You think you've got forever? Let me tell you. You've got short 80, maybe 90 years if, if, uh, if God should so allow you. Right? But the time is coming, and it's coming real soon. Yeah. It's what? Time's up. We got to go. Okay. Let's pray. God, our Father, we, we praise you for such glorious promises, God. Oh, Lord, we are deeply encouraged, realizing that in your sovereign hand lies the end of our days. In fact, it lies the end of all days. But, Lord, you are the ancient of days. And that you are bringing your world to an expected end. And we thank you for your free grace which you offer to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. May none of us be found outside of him, God. But may we repent of our sins and trust in Christ and be saved. We thank you for the privilege of having these promises. And we thank you for the glory and the wonder that accompanies such passages of Scripture which speak of uh, 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 events to come in the future that are just amazing to us, God. We thank you that you've given us so much understanding. Help us, Lord, to understand even better. And then, Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to be busy about your business. Help us to be those who are walking in a manner worthy of your calling. God, help us to be those who glorify you with every day and with every breath. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.